let's bring in Randy Weingard now. Randy is the longtime president of the American Federation of Teachers. In the simplest of terms, what do America's teachers need to return to their classrooms in the fall? What's it going to take? So let me just debunk one myth, Craig, because we put out, as you know, a plan to reopen schools safely in April. So this is not about politics for us. This is about safety and equity for both our kids and for our members and for our teachers. Randy, are, are America's teachers prepared to make sure that students are wearing masks, to make sure that they are socially distancing? Are, are they prepared to make sure that all of these, these fourth graders and fifth graders are, are washing their hands? So great, this is why teachers are so amazing. They understand, they, they put routines together for everything and we'll have to put a routine together and we'll have to have some fun about washing hands and we'll have to make those, you know, you'll, we'll have to make those things happen. But that's why, because the equity concerns of getting our kids back to school um, is really important. And frankly, just because Donald Trump wants to take a risk with people who go to bars or beaches, those of us who have spent our life teaching kids are not going to take a risk with kids or with our members' lives. We know what will prevent a virus spread in a school. We've done a lot of research. And frankly, the, the, the president trying to ignore research and science or trying to pressure the CDC to change that science is not okay with parents or with teachers. Um, and this is what, let me just say one more thing. This is what I'm scared about. And I said this in an interview yesterday. They, if, if too many of our members believe Donald Trump's hyperbole instead of somebody like Andrew Cuomo's caution about, about their health and safety, we're going to have a whole lot of people retire early, quit, take a leave. So at the very same time that kids need these experienced teachers because they're facing three crises, they need people to kind of calm them down, focus on their well-being and their instruction. We're going to see a huge brain drain in the next few weeks. Welcome to What's Left, a weekly political discussion challenging the mainstream left. We are online at whatsleftpodcast.com. You can find the link to our blog in the episode notes. Please subscribe, rate, review, turn on your notifications, share your favorite episode, and jot down our information wherever you find this episode. Uh, my name is Andy Libson. I'm a public. I'm a no. I'm a school teacher in Oakland and a socialist. Well, we're joined as usual by, with Jessica, a teacher and organizer in Oregon. Um, Eduardo will not be here. He's still in Colombia. Um, but we are joined with a special guest here, Alex Gutentag, who is a former public school teacher uh, in, in Oakland, who um, writes on the in the magazine Tablet, contributing editor to Compact, and writes on the Substack for public for public news. Is that correct? Yeah. <laughs> Very good. Um, well, Alex, welcome. And I've actually heard a lot about you during the COVID time. So it's really great to have you here. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I'm, I'm glad to talk to you guys. I, For some reason, I miss that you're both teachers. But uh, I, I feel like you told me, but I 
no no it's fine and I have to say too like I for some reason so both Eduardo and Andy are San Francisco area like Bay Area based Mm -hmm. so and I they have had this podcast for years and I only joined as a co-host last year and for some reason I had it in my head that you all had connected like back in 2020 or 2021 because I know there were not a whole lot of educators like speaking up against the lockdowns and you know kind of in this space and so I in my head I was like they must like have connected at some point maybe you were on the show (laughs) I wish we had but (laughs) can I say something about that because honestly I remember reading a lot of your stuff um Alex and it was like oh this is great oh this is a public school teacher in Oakland and I kept on, I was like trying to stalk you actually, trying to get your email address. <laughs> but all I could find was Twitter and I don't do Twitter. So I was yeah. like helpless. Like, so I, I, I kept on looking for your email somewhere. And I think I found something that was connected to a, a, a magazine you had ri- written. I sent something in, hey, I'm a teacher in, in San Francisco, but they never got back to me. So then I just like, ah. Yeah, I I didn't make it super easy to contact me either because on Twitter my DMs were closed for a long time because I just like got so much hate that I just you know so it was probably my my fault now. But now if people want to DM me, my DMs are open. Oh well, I was just going to say this is a very special day for us because we're finally getting to meet you, and because it's Jessica's birthday today. So everyone who sees this episode, please say happy birthday to Jessica, even though it'll be a week and a half late. Happy birthday, Jessica. <laughs> Thank you, Alex. Thank you, Andy. <laughs> and Eduardo says happy birthday. Yes, I heard from Eduardo earlier today. Left me a very sweet message. All right. So, Jessica, why don't you kind of get us started off? Yeah, I mean, I, I would love to just kind of let Alex introduce herself. Um, and I'm sure some of our readers have followed her work, like especially the tablet. Try to remember like when your first tablet piece was at 20. 21 um my first tablet piece was in must have been July 2021 but I wrote the first thing I wrote was in September 2020 okay yeah so but it wasn't in tablet I'm sure a lot of people have read your articles but I'm sure there's also audience members who aren't familiar with your work so I would love to maybe just let you introduce yourself and kind of talk a little bit about your background I know you're a public school teacher, sort of pre-COVID era. Um, And then, yeah, I just, I've been really appreciative of your work. I feel like you've been one of the most kind of cogent um, voices this this whole time and just very consistent and clear. And yeah, just as an educator who has been really frustrated the past few years and (laughs) all of us have been, yeah, all of us on the show have been kind of involved in the education space in some capacity. So it was, yeah, it's just been really amazing to, to have your, your analysis and um, yeah. So, so how did you, you were a teacher. Tell us, tell us your background. Um, So I was a teacher um, in New York city for three years and then in Oakland for five years. Um, and I taught special education. Um, I also always taught in a, low income setting. So my students were pretty high need in a lot of different ways. And when the school closures started, um, I just thought it would be two weeks. I wasn't really tapped into what was going on. 
but I had misgivings. I started to have misgivings the first week of the closures. Uh, and then when it was announced that it was going to be extended to be, I think, a whole month or two months, uh, that's when I felt like, oh, my gosh, this is not going to be good. I just kept thinking about certain students I had had, like in New York City, a lot of my students were homeless and they were in the shelter system. Um, I had students, yeah, I had one student who had 10 siblings in the same room as him with him and his mom in the shelter. And I just thought this is not going to work. Like this school closure <laughs> situation is not going to work for every kid because um, some students don't have a great place to be at home and and if even if it's great it might not be the most conducive to learning um i also sort of felt like we were uh, already from the beginning in that spring creating a really unequal situation because i knew some students in more affluent schools were getting more zoom school whereas in the more in the low income setting, they basically got nothing. I also taught at the middle school level. And what was going on was that teachers would have, uh, I mean, this was the only thing they were kind of expected to do was just have like an hour of office hours every day and put work online. And that's just not really sufficient. Um, we didn't really have a lot of options because most kids didn't have a computer internet to a computer and internet, like you need the two to start. And then even when they passed out computers, a lot of students, probably a third, didn't have internet. So I think that whole spring, they basically lost, which already seems like a really big deal to me and um, already made me quite upset. But I thought, well, everyone's going to know, realize in the summer that this is not working, number one. And number two, we have all this data now showing that kids and schools are not really a site of like uh, kids are not at risk for severe I don't want to say something is this on YouTube don't worry about it I mean well okay you okay well actually I don't I'm not gonna say anything about it because well anyways I was the, the data would suggest that we could reopen schools for a variety of reasons which won't be said because YouTube still censors stuff and I don't want to get into it. But um, so that was my thinking going into the summer. And in the summer, if you remember, it there they were planning to reopen. There was going to be some kind of in-person plan, whether it was hybrid or whether it was um, different groups of kids at different times. And certainly they did they did plan on having the students with disabilities who are in the special day class, which is a separate setting for them to, to come back. That was the plan. So I thought it was under control. This will be fine. And then something in July, like the cases started going, it was the cases, the cases, the cases, oh my God, the cases. And they started backtracking that plan. And by, by must've been, yeah, by late July, it was clear that we were not going to go back in person. And my efforts to um, convince colleagues and my my union that we should go back was just confined to talking to people and um saying my position and like sending them things that I thought 
vindicated my position and I just focused on the students with disabilities. I knew it would be very overwhelming for them to hear that I thought everybody should go back. So I just focus on my students and not and also potentially just the students with severe disabilities going back. That was kind of my pitch and it was did not work at all. <laughs> it was like very much fell, fall, fell on deaf ears. Um, I, and that's kind of when I realized that what was going on was deeply irrational and that there was no hope for change from within. So the first, so I decided that I would have to advocate to the outside world to say what was really going on with virtual learning, which was that it doesn't work and it's creepy and weird. And um, to say that there wasn't really a scientific basis to keep it in place, um, as opposed to all these other things we could have done. And I was really cognizant of the fact that we weren't trying to do anything about um, having kids in small groups outside or different workarounds, it was all about the tech and the online. So the first thing I wrote was, I'm sure it's horrible. Like, I don't encourage anyone to read this article because it's probably really didn't stand the test of time. But it was called <laughs> the virtual education shock doctrine about all my thoughts on like, why? <laughs> I read that. Uh, it was good. Okay. <laughs> Why online learning was really backwards um, and part of, you know, a, a shift away from a, a shift to put kids more and more on tech and online. And I think that has happened because I think there's still a legacy now um, of the one-to-one -one computer model that's still going on, that's still kind of being pushed was being pushed before school closures obviously happened a lot during the school closures. And now I think it's still, there's still residual. You guys would probably know, but um, yeah, that's how it started for me. That's what kicked everything off. And then I started tweeting a lot and writing more and it just kind of snowballed out of my control and like became something much bigger. So you were, were you you were teaching online for the first mm -hmm. long? Yeah, I was teaching online, and then I went back the for the um in the spring in April when they finally let us go back. And I mean, I the one of the your re most recent article that both me and Jessica has read uh, was titled. How how teachers union broke public education and your own disappointment um, in the teachers union position and I think mm -hmm. your colleagues' position, which I share. I share both. Like when we talked about going back, we were like, "You're going to kill. You're going to kill these kids. You want to kill their grandparents. You want to kill us." Like that's the kind of stuff people were talking about, oh, despite yeah. the <laughs> fact that all the all all the all the data that was even the lies that CDC were telling mm -hmm. didn't even add up to, to people getting killed from this stuff. So, yeah. um, and it was absurd, but it was, it was what teachers were saying. Um, and like you said, I remember in San Francisco in J July, people really beginning to gin the thing up of like, we've got to make sure we don't go back. Like, yeah. you know, like no one goes back. Um, and, uh, so I do want to get into the elements of that article, um, how the unions broke public education. But I'd also like to hear what was your journey 
like I, I know I've gone on a long journey since that time about of change, you know, political change and how I see education, how I see just the world. Can you trace some of those things that have happened since the start of COVID to where you are now? A little bit, a little bit. I mean, it's so much. It's and it's like I'm lost and disoriented. So it's I'm really bad at articulating. I'm not I feel like I haven't gone through the other end of this journey, you know. But I would I mean, I, what I could say is is I started on like very much on the left. I don't know. I guess you guys probably I mean, I still think I'm on the left. I don't care if no one else thinks I'm on the left like or if the left is bad, I still <laughs> yeah. Like I don't care how bad it is, and I don't care how much they reject me. I still <laughs> feel like they're wrong and whatever. But um, I was also a union rep for three years. I and I was a rep when the school closure started. Um, and I. I at the end of that semester I was I realized I definitely couldn't keep going there were some other reasons I couldn't stay a rep because I just didn't want to for in you know petty school stuff reasons that seems so small now but I was just like this isn't worth it for me um but one of the reasons was because I knew they were going to organize to to stay closed or do things like that and I didn't I wasn't going to be able to do that. But I really loved the union. Like I it's people were mad at that article the union breaking education one. But I could tell them no matter how much you think you like the teachers union, I swear I liked it more. <laughs> and <laughs> the um I, in my school, I don't know, I was a bit militant, I would say, about uh, about the union, about things being by the book, about advocating for teachers. I always was not on the side of the administration, not in a belligerent way, but that was definitely my vibe as a union rep. And um, we had been on strike the previous year. I had all kinds of you know, things then to resolve with my administration. It, it wasn't like I was anti-union in any way. I was extremely pro-union and I got in trouble for it, is all I'm saying. So it's really heartbreaking to then feel like, oh, I hate the teachers union. I I can't I can't think of a you know a worse <laughs> way this organization could could be run. Um so I think that I, I I can't say exactly where I am politically, but I think it's just a, a lot of disillusionment and starting from zero, where I feel like every single issue now I have to look at and really, really think it through because I can't really go with what I thought before. I can't go with my knee-jerk reaction. It just has to be from scratch because um, it's a really disorienting experience when you have a rule that you can kind of go by like union good and you realize that rule did not serve you and that rule is is was wrong mm -hmm. um it makes it makes me feel now really hesitant to say this is my rule of how i evaluate things mm -hmm. um so i'm i'm not really sure where i am and one last thing and let me just give another question i also 
assume that there, you had differences of opinion with your union on the mandates, on imposition of vaccine stuff, and PCR testing. I'm kind of assuming that not that wasn't talked about as much in your article. Yeah, but I I was gone by that time because I left at the after the spring semester of 2021. So once that stuff was going on. I, I, I'm against it, but I didn't, I don't have the same, I don't have the same emotional response because I didn't live it. Yeah. Well, I was going to ask kind of if you want to dig into the article a little bit more, or Andy, do you have more sort of general questions? I didn't want to jump the gun. Not so much general questions. I think, yeah, let's go into the article. Cause I, I, I would love to just, just talk about this, this, the, the union stuff in general, because I, I would love to talk about it, too, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, I also just want to say, I mean, I kind of we kind of put you on the spot there in, in terms of like, you know, your politics. But I think, I mean, even just the name, of our, even the name of our show, like what's left. I mean, I think we're all in yeah. that similar space of like just kind of reeling of like, whoa, <laughs> you know, yeah. a couple of years have been such a such a ride. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I think I think a lot of people share that sentiment of just like, I'm not really sure what where I. Am. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So yeah, let let's let's jump into this article, and we'll link all of your your stuff below. Um, definitely encourage people to check it out. But yeah, I mean, this is I think this was just a really clear and like concise kind of overview of how much blame really i mean the teachers union should on the national scale like has in this um so do you want to kind of introduce like what maybe what sparked the article obviously like yeah. everything is talked about but um especially like now in i mean i know this is a couple months old but like in 2023 um yeah like where did how did this piece emerge well, I was thinking of writing something when Randy Weingarten um, testified before Congress about school closures. Um, on the, I guess it must have been the coronavirus subcommittee that where she was speaking. Um, but I didn't. And then the Oakland strike happened. And um, I then was like, oh, I'll just write it. So, but in a larger sense, I do think it is, I do think when I wrote the first thing I wrote about schools in September, 2020, I didn't blame the teachers or the teachers union at all, because that was very uncomfortable to me. And so what I was saying was blaming like Gavin Newsom and the tech companies. And um, I think Gavin Newsom should be blamed. and our politicians and public health officials should be blamed but um there was also on the ground um active effort of the union and teachers to keep schools closed and that feels like not right to kind of uh dismiss that part of the story because it doesn't feel good um, and I think in the meantime, I had also written a couple more articles about the school closures that were just about what happened and science. And it was always kind of like, oh, people should be held responsible, whoever it is, <laughs> not 
not gonna say, but <laughs> um I so I wanted to kind of write this thing where I felt like this is the last thing I'm gonna say about the school closures, and it's just gonna be hopefully, I really hope it's the last thing. And it's just gonna be the truth, which is what happened, which is that um unfortunately, I think an organization that was supposed to protect public schools ended up doing a lot of damage to public schools. And I also wanted to write something from that perspective because a lot of the time on the political right, there will be this anti-teachers union sentiment uh, where the solution is always privatization and the solution is um, charter schools, voucher system, et cetera. And I think that I don't really have at this point an argument um, against them because I don't know what to say to defend the teachers union and the public schools. But I I wanted to write something that what explained a, a little bit how the union failed on its own terms and and how the thing that was this public common good of public education um has kind it is 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 falling apart and uh there's not necessarily a solution for what to do about that and i don't think that privatization is is really going to fix that it's you you still need that common good yeah so i'm sure people feel a lot like what's your solution then if you're not for, you know, the public education system and the union in the way that they are right now and you're not for privatization? I don't know. People have asked me that question. <laughs> Similar critiques. It's like, I guess, homeschool, co-op, burn down the system or what. But then, you know, as your article mentions several times, right, it's like with any any model, like who gets the short end of the stick every single time, right? It's always the marginalized communities that the public educators and, and unions like, you know, purport to be for, <laughs> purport yeah. to be getting for under the whole social justice guys. And yet, you know, they're in every scenario, right? Like whether you leave the system, go private or try to go private or, st you know, to stick it out. Um, and I'm sure Andy, you, do you want to say a little bit about your like job switch? Cause I feel like you're now in, you're not, is it a charter school? Yeah. I should know. Yeah. It is a charter school that you're at now. Yeah. I mean, there is stuff. I, I, for me, I no longer make a distinction between public, private, mm -hmm. charter. It's all in my opinion, institutionalized education. It's all a head fixing mm -hmm. operation. And I, I think I was wrong as a person who believes that capitalism from my vantage point as a socialist who thinks capitalism's got to go, there's nothing to defend in public education because it's an institution of capitalism to essentially prepare workers for exploitation and get their minds right around that question. Be like, and that's what I think yeah. it is. And that was my 20 years as an educator. I'm sure I had great, I have great relationship with my students, but that was my job, you know? Um, and so I no longer believe mm -hmm. in institutionalized education has any role to play other than a, a bad one. And I think the public, the public teachers unions, um, well, I do think like that they were collaborators in this process. Mm -hmm. um, and 
John Kleisek has written a, a series of articles, or at least one or two articles, talking about how ran, like the, the presidents of NEAFT were literally sitting on boards with Belinda Gates mm-hmm. and all these tech people, basically set, wanting to be part of the of the discussion about the whole way tech was going to be brought into education and how tech was going to be brought into the workforce. Mm-hmm. They just wanted a place at the table, yeah. you know, um, and, and, and because of that, they, they are collaborators in this process of, in my opinion, of the fourth industrial revolution. I also will not just blame unions. I will blame teachers as workers for going along with that because, uh, all these, you know, there were strikes in Chicago and strikes, the red wave that was happening. Um, and the, the teachers in Chicago were saying, we're doing this strike. This was the one before before the one you noted where they were like trying to keep schools, you know, trying to stop schools from being opened um, and trying mm-hmm. to make sure that people were like staying remote. But there was an earlier set of strikes where they thought of themselves as, as building links with the community through their strike and taking up some of their issues. and. Um, I personally think that even in that one, they kind of abandoned things early, abandoned that. But once you went, once you took the line of we have to keep people safe through COVID and stuff like mm-hmm. that, you were literally created, you were taking the position of the state, the position of the corporations against other working class families. And that's the position yeah. teachers unions took. And that's the position teachers took. And it was disgusting to me. And I could not, uh, just on a basic level, everything I knew about education was about relationships that you build with students and they were accepting that those relationships were going to get broken and they were trying to gaslight me and themselves that you could form a relationship in these little boxes up here. And I knew that for a fact because I experienced it for those two months after, you know, at the end of that year and then for the rest of that year. And it was my worst experience ever in in teaching. Yeah. I mean, the, I mean, the thing like the relate, the relationship, I mean, the whole thing was so crazy it's just crazy to think back because the people who knew about the importance of relationships would, like you said, gaslight us into acting like <laughs> you could do that on the boxes on the screen and stuff. And it was horrible. I, I mean, they also did this thing. I don't know if they did this where you worked, but they did this thing like where they kind of pretended that what we were that this type of learning was like was like social social justice related because kids could go at their own pace so it was personalized i'm did they do did they do that where you guys teach we're teaching at the time and that is the language of ed tech and ai that is what the argument around the ai introduction of education is is it's going to be individualized education because everyone's going to have a little cruise teacher who can teach them who's electronic <laughs> you know like a, it's like a cut co- like a coach and then yeah you know, and, the, and the camera on the computer will track your eye movement exactly see what you understand so and that language was was conscious because this is the language that was being used by the tech companies and 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 randy weingarten and nea and aft and everyone down the ladder was just signing on to that and we were yeah. signing off on for the elimination of our jobs. Yeah, exactly. And at the time that was really stood out to me because we had been on strike the year before. So I know knew the way that the strike works is the kids don't show up and then the district doesn't get the money and then they have to negotiate. So if we're doing this thing where attendance is just you logging into the computer 
how are we ever going to have the leverage to go on strike again? Yeah, like where's the where's the picket <laughs> line on Zoom? Like, what? yeah, <laughs> yeah. And Oakland Oakland School District looked into this during this last strike, and it's it's on the horizon yeah. of remote teachers from mm-hmm. other parts of the country yeah. who are going to be scabs or yeah. called scabs. But frankly, at this point, we scabbed ourselves. Yeah, we we literally yeah. created the infrastructure to to allow them to to kill every one of our work actions. Yeah. Yeah, I guess so. I guess I'm the only one here who's still teaching in a public institution of some kind. So I I don't (laughs) know if I said Alex. Like, so I I'm a college professor. So I teach. I mean, higher ed's like a little bit different in terms of some of the stuff, but I mean, fundamentally, not really. Um, And yeah, like just on that point, Andy, that you said about sort of not making a distinction, because I mean, I'm not for privatization or charter schools either. Like I obviously it's everything I'm <laughs> against, but even like, so I, I'm not at the institution I was teaching at, uh, like 2020, 2021. I'm now at like a rural, um, I'm at, uh, a rural public university in Eastern Oregon. And it's just crazy. Like how many arms of corporate privatization like they just have their hands in every single pocket of our supposedly public education even now that we're like back full-time in person even though supposedly and we're in like a fairly conservative area so it's not even like the culture isn't even on the same level that Mm -hmm. it was when I was was back in Seattle before but yeah I mean like you're so it's not it's not private like there's just all the money's going to apps it's going to um third party uh people monitoring shit like on instructure and canvas and all of the learning management systems and like everything's becoming more like self-paced um mm-hmm. so it's, not, like, it's not a public education in my opinion yeah and i think i think too like i was interested like your article opens um like talking about the whole like common good sort mm-hmm. of thing that that the unions you know and and that I mean I I was a member of my union I wasn't on leadership like but I would I would go to all the meetings and you know I we we did some short-term strikes Mm -hmm. Um, so I was like very very pro-union um but I I started to notice even the couple of years like before COVID that more like even just in meetings like the amount of time that was starting to be spent on stuff that was not salary and maybe like mm-hmm. health insurance, like basic benefits just started to get bigger and bigger. And it was like, yeah, like the the climate justice days and pronouns and like all of this like culture wars stuff started to take up more and more space. And then like once COVID happened, it was just like, all right, full on. Yeah. <laughs> full on. <laughs> yeah. I mean, in my union, I noticed that, a little bit and it just started really small it started like I have a motion to condemn Donald Trump for the kids yeah. in cages oh. yeah <laughs> and yes. you're just like okay I mean <laughs> this is not what the meeting's about but sure you know we condemn you know let the kids out of the cages you know whatever you say um I have a second for kids yeah <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> like no one's gonna be like I think it's I, I don't care about that you know um at that you know at that time whatever <laughs> um like like even though I was I felt like that was you know not 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 necessarily even appropriate um it's like not even worth me my time to even say anything it's like let's let them say what they want get their motion whatever and it started like that uh but it then became extreme I mean and the extreme iteration of it was during school closures in the summer of 2020 when all the union did was try to remove the police from Oakland public schools and not negotiate with the district about how we were going to reopen. I could not believe it because it, it, the, whatever you think about removing the police from Oakland public schools, it was symbolic. If you look at that number, like the number of police it's it's symbolic. It doesn't affect people. And all what most people see in the schools are the security officers. That's doesn't have anything to do with the Oakland Police Department. So they're focusing on something that affects like a few schools. Uh, over Hero, something that affects every too. kid why in the district. Why? Yes, and they were gonna. <laughs> why do you care? They were gonna be on officer. Zoom. <laughs> like what? <laughs> it just. I mean, it it was wild. Um, it was just the clearest example of choosing to virtue signal about something or make yourself feel good, uh, versus address a major educational question. Uh, it was very frustrating. Yeah. In my impression, the thing you said in your article that I definitely really, really resonated with me is the growing, uh, synchronicity between union, well, between unions and all union struggles and the Democratic Party. Yeah. And I found that I do feel like a lot of that, while it was it, it had that kind of radical language to it. And there's a as a person who knows this because of my you know my past and what I know about revolutions in Russia and Spain, the idea of economic struggles becoming not just economic struggles, but political struggles. And that is usually how what that's really what makes revolutionary moments happen. And so there were radicals who were like thinking that they weren't going to just take up economic demands, but political demands, but were, but forgot the, forgot that that, that for the mass strike or general strike, that was the, the basis for that transition happening, not just your tiny little union taking up a single demand. Because if you put it in the context of your tiny little union, that was largely going to be driven by your union bureaucracy, which was entirely tied to the Democratic Party. And so really all, all these radicals, including myself, who fell for this kind of stuff, we're doing was driving people through our union towards the Democratic Party, and that's that to me is what was driving this. Um, it, it and and it wasn't even I think you put it in terms of fanaticism in your thing. If it was fanaticism for the Democratic Party, not fanaticism for for change, you know, and <laughs> people didn't see it that way, but that's what it ultimately became. And and if you have fanaticism for Democratic Party, not only are you not for change, you are now completely an establishment tool. And that is what the unions and I feel like a lot of my colleagues became establishment tools uh, by basically fighting for things that were harming our students, harming education, harming the world. Um, and it was so that's kind of how I started to see that. And I think that the thing you the criticism you you made about the ties of our union to the Democratic Party, that's how I, I largely see most of these most of these things. Yeah, I think that 
it's it makes sense that the union does political donations uh you would expect that because you expect the union to spend money on things that are in the interest of teachers but the amount of donations it makes that has absolutely nothing to do with with teachers is crazy and like the amount of things on the you know NEAFT websites about the, the political things they're interested in don't have anything to do with uh, teaching conditions working conditions pay and then I, I think that the way that they've that they kind of get away with it is that they make every single part of the Democratic Party platform something that affects our students and that's why this is <laughs> We don't care about the education of our students, but we care about all these parts of the Democratic Party platform that affects our students. Um, I think it's so it's 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 not good and it's seeped so much into also uh, some like some of the other directives teachers get that don't come from the union. It's kind of like I felt like sometimes in my district, it was like the district will be really pushing plat platform stuff democratic party stuff and then the union will be pushing the same but like from a slightly in a slightly different way and and it's just um it's just kind of i don't know it's sad it's it's sad how much it has become about ideology and when we were online I don't know if you guys saw had the same experience but one thing I noticed was that I never got um instructions from my school to like tell kids about some political thing going on in the moment before we were online and then when it was on when we were online it was like every time something would happen in the news I would get a slideshow that some te another teacher made or something about like what to tell what to tell our students about it um and I thought that was so uh that that was it that made it so clear that we are forsaking the actual education of the kids for political indoctrination because we can't we couldn't really teach them online so it was like you listen to my slideshow about like how great it is that the coronavirus vaccine is ready and how horrible it is that there was a coup at the capitol like all this stuff and there's that quote from um the utla president where she said there's no such thing as learning loss learning loss is not real our kids didn't lose any our babies i think she said our babies didn't lose anything because they learned the word insurrection <laughs> <laughs> She said it doesn't matter if our babies didn't learn all their times tables or something like that. It was just... God. Yeah. <laughs> it's just really disappointing. And you just think, why did I ever think this person was good? Because I think she talked at our strike in 2019. And I was like, she's cool. She That was a great speech. And now I just think, why did I think that this person does not know anything? But yeah, I mean, the way I've come to see it is they are dedicated to the preservation, not just of the establishment, but of their of the trade union apparatus. They mm -hmm. are not dedicated towards anything other than that. Um, and they can talk about 
and in their mind, preserving the apparatus is is synonymous with preserving public education. Yeah. And I actually increasingly, and this was when I was part of a, a reform caucus, when me and some set of co us colleagues were getting more and more kind of like lefty, lefty and we were called ultra left, is I came to, to really see that we had to get out of all of that. Like we were saying UESF has to get out of NEA, AFT, CFT, CTA, and even we we didn't even think we needed a we we wouldn't want a full time uh, union apparatus like our dues should just go towards a strike fund and that's it. Um, and yeah. beyond that, there's no reason to have anything there. And I I I, I, be, I believe that at least that if and I, at this point, I think the apparatus of a union has really only the effect of conservatizing its members and. Um, playing into their worst instincts that the union is the apparatus, not themselves. Yeah. And I'll just say this, I, the thing your article didn't really talk about, which is something I believe is we don't, I don't, I don't think we just have a union problem. I think we have a worker problem and that is right. teachers who conceive of the union as something that's not them. And the union mm -hmm. facilitates that, but I mean, th there's just an immense amount of of willingness to let somebody else do the job of trying to make change, mm -hmm. um, and it, that will never work. Um, and people, all, yeah. all these history teachers who talk about these struggles that people are part of, they teach about it, but they don't seem to want to draw, draw on the lesson. Like these are people making history; it wasn't instant, wasn't bureaucracies, and so. They don't. They they just want the bureaucracy somehow to, to liberate us, and that was never going to happen. It was always going to be a trap. Yeah, I think it's. I mean, I think one one thing I've thought about a lot is I just think teachers are kind of rule followers, and they like rules, and so they're <laughs> that made them really prone to go along with all the COVID stuff, and also makes them less polit like less politic active I mean they'll think of themselves as politically active because they'll do the right things that they're supposed to do that they're told to do is like the right like this is the new current thing <laughs> you know uh but they in terms of what you're saying like the teachers recognizing their political role in the union that they make up the union yeah, I think that was a struggle before the school closures uh, to get people to realize that when I was part of organizing things. So I definitely know what you're talking about. And um, I think it's just a profession that is a is a lot of the time for people about, um, you know, it's about socializing kids and you have to teach them norms. And so a lot of the people attracted to it are really into norms and they thrived in an environment that was heavily rule-based. And that's why people remember their teacher who was like a little more interesting or a little, <laughs> a little out there because all their other teachers were uh, rule-based kinds of people. What's wrong with us? <laughs> what? <laughs> What's wrong with us? <laughs> I, I really agree with that. It is ultimately why, while I can have, I can form relationships with students and parents in these institutions, 
in the same way that I've come to believe that there's no way that we can make any revolutionary change through this tech, I don't believe. I used to think that public education unions in their strikes and possibly even in the spreading of their strikes could be the could be part of a social transformation mm-hmm. within a city and within the country and then within the world. We certainly know in Oaxaca, those teachers did some amazing things, you know, in terms of the willingness to fight for education just for the poorest people. So it's not like it's so it, it seems like it's kind of possible, but there's a there's an ossification that has occurred in this country that at this point I just want the apparatus gone and and mm-hmm. the teachers are going to have to just figure it on their own how to fight for their for, for the interests of those and those around them. Um, and I don't think we can do it within these institutions because of what you just said, which is we are head fixers and our heads have been fixed. We had to get a, a credential that proved to our employer that our heads were fixed enough to yeah. do that willingly <laughs> to somebody else. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. I, I, mean, I totally agree with your like assessment. I mean, in, in the university system, it's, it's almost like a stereotype of like, even these like older generation, like tenured professors who do like have you know, maybe a better salary and they have tenure. So they have like more protection in terms of like politics and research and stuff like that. Um, but it just, at least what I've witnessed is it's just like this cyclical thing of like, they go through the motions, they follow all the the rules of like whatever Roberts or what unions and they, you know, sometimes put down this like record of dissent or whatever on certain issues, but ultimately like they're never really willing to actually stick their neck out. Um, and obviously, I mean, teachers are, it's not like teachers by and large are well-paid, like we're all being exploited in, in our own ways, but it still was shocking to me. Like even knowing all of that, it still was shocking to me to see just how, how much they fell in line Mm -hmm. the past couple of years, because to me, it was like, okay, set aside like all, like your relationship to your students, everything you know about how power works set all that aside like to me they were laying the bricks of their own like the destruction of their own profession mm-hmm. and I to me it's yeah. just like I can't understand how they couldn't see that because it, it's inconceivable to them that the narrative could have been wrong yeah. like, they just couldn't process that concept mm-hmm. I mean I think that's literally what it comes down to like how could MSNBC tell me something that was wrong it just could not register. Like it just was such a foreign idea that it 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 was like telling. That's what I felt like with the things I was saying to people. Sometimes it it wasn't like they thought, "Oh my god!" I mean, well, some of it was like I did feel like they were like, "Oh, you must be MAGA or something." That doesn't make sense. But it, mo- it was mostly like you're on drugs. Like you, that was what I felt like on their face. Like, are you? tripping like what are you saying this is so not in my reality it's not in their reality that the new york times would say some would say something that was wrong you know so i think there's an there was an incredible amount of cognitive dissonance i think people a lot of the teachers i was you know i mean would be in meetings with worse i think they were suffering a lot psychologically and um, I think they had a lot of cognitive dissonance. I think they still have it. 
I think some of the things that they did was to try to resolve that cognitive dissonance, like in Oakland, not, uh, it must've been last year, 2022, they had some sort of like student strike that was obviously organized by the union and the union. I can't remember the details, but it was to get N95s. Yeah. It was like, yeah, it was like they, 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 they got the message, you know, they got the signal from CNN or something that cloth masks don't work or whatever. So they decided that means we need N95s. So they, they, they couldn't think through, okay, well, I, we've been wearing, you know, these like, you know, Paw Patrol cloth masks and nobody died in front of me so I guess it's fine to to remove the mask no they thought no now we must get N95s because they couldn't it was as though they would do anything other than to confront the fact that they had been told and had participated in a lie just kept had to just keep going and digging yeah I, I this is a little bit of a segue but I think it relates um just like how your article brought up parents too because that's why I mean b- being in the higher ed system obviously like we don't really deal a whole lot with parents but I think that's such an important point that you made about sort of like <laughs> whatever like if you're if you're fighting for public education you're fighting for students you're fighting for workers you know by and large like you have to have the parents on your side and the fact yeah. that in especially in you know some of the communities that it sounds like you were working I know like Eduardo was you know specifically working with like low-income Latino you know parents in the mission like those sorts of populations the fact that like there was this divide between educators and families it's just so it, it was never gonna work <laughs> you you if you're if the families aren't buying in to your worker struggle or your social yeah. justice struggle something's off <laughs> right I felt so bad because we had just the previous year told like asked the parents to support us in the strike and they kept right. their kids home Right. I was like, this is such a slap in the face. Yeah. And I felt so bad because during the strike, I had I had personally asked a lot of the classified workers to join the picket line and not go in. And they did. They like They're usually they, the first ones, like, you know, the Yeah. Yeah, they they completely supported us. Um and they like they were on the picket line with us and they um you know they didn't get paid like it like they could have gone in and got paid and then what we did was then like again a slap in the face like a lot of those people like the custodians the custodian subs the cafeteria workers the subs for the cafeteria workers those people were out of work yep um and i remember during our strike there was this one like a, a someone who like would get part-time work at the cafeteria if someone was out and this was a big deal because they couldn't go to work. So we made sure like we gave them something at like a big, you know, present at the end. And a lot of the teachers really cared about this. And then during the school closures, it was like that person does not exist. (laughs) None of the custodians, custodian subs, cafeteria workers exist. It's like, who cares what happens to their jobs? 
it was bad. It, it was really sad. I, it was, it was not, it was not right. And I felt personally, I still feel personally guilty for having part, having been really gung ho during that strike. And I feel like said a lot of things to people to like convince them to get on board with the union and put in a lot of rhetoric to legitimize the union. And I felt like during school closures, I was like, I regret every minute of that because I regret ever telling the uh, like my colleagues to listen to the union as a general principle. <laughs> like it would it would have been better if I hadn't said that, but whatever. Well, did I mean, you say did you say, oh, the union wants you to do this, or did you say, hey, you talked with the folks about why, at least at that time, because I actually went to I remember going to Skyline from San Francisco to to join a picket line over in skyline um and it seemed like the people what i saw people doing were like talking to businesses and then talking to the classified about hey why you should join us now they were saying yeah. the union but they were saying us you know like those of yeah. us who are on that struggle i still believe in that and i but i i don't believe that the institutions that we were part of the, the were were believing in that yeah, um, I still believe in that. I just think it would have been nice if what we said about like the kind of this kind of solidarity messaging had been yeah. true. <laughs> yeah. yeah. If it had been a two way street, that would have been nice. I mean, it was just that our students, parents are essential workers. So yeah. we're having our work from home pajama lifestyle being upheld by our students, parents. And then we refuse to actually teach them I mean I don't know I really struggle now I still struggle to understand how with how people think that's defensible but it it isn't defensible but it is completely a it's like a knife in the idea of working class solidarity it's like yeah it's literally it's like taking a hammer to glass I mean they really showed we think we're professional class um you know, all our friends are professional class, like, you know, all our friends and partners, like roommates, whatever, all of them are working from home. So we're in the work from home class. How could you expect us to, you know, do what the food deliver people delivering food do or, you know, uh, Amazon delivery, like we don't keep the lights on. That's, oh, that's gross. <laughs> if you do that <laughs> yeah I am curious in light of what you've come to see of your union um what would you what would you say would you believe in a union today in in any teacher workplace in any workplace because i I do believe you when you say i love I love the idea of a world I love unions but what would you what would be your idea of healing them or fixing them? or rebuilding them if if you if you could just say oh, this is what we should do kind of thing I uh, I mean that's a good question and I really don't know hmm. I do think I still think they're they're needed I mean definitely I mean I don't know do you guys think there's a difference between private sector unions and public sector unions or do you think it's the same issues I think it's the same issue I mean roughly but yes I think they're, in my opinion, they both have the same, they're both tied to the Democratic Party mm -hmm. and like, or they're tied to some state apparatus, some go Republican, but either way, they're 
they're emissaries of the state. Yeah. Yeah, largely I agree. I mean, I'm inclined to say that um, they're needed, but I think it should be a really small bureaucracy. Um, I don't think it should snowball into a huge bureaucracy. Uh, I think that's where a lot of the problems come because um, the people who rise to the top of those bureaucracies. And I feel like I saw it in real time in the teachers union and I didn't realize what I was seeing. Um, but the people who rise to the top are committed to gaining power and maintaining the power of the union. They're not committed to like the cause of what the union was set up to do. Like it's, they don't have a, fu like a functional mindset their mindset is about power and that's how and why they rise to the top so i don't know if that's i don't know how to avoid that but that i think that's a big part of why the the power and the scope of the union just continues to expand um i think what you said yeah about a strike fund with very little bureaucracy attached to it um most of the things the union does, I don't, the teachers union does, I don't think are necessary. Um, so yeah, I, I would say a bargaining and a strike fund and then try to keep everything else to a minimum. But I don't know how that works out in reality and how you prevent things from getting out of control so i don't know you guys probably have better solutions i don't really have a solution <laughs> well, none of us have a solution i can guarantee you that <laughs> but i'm curious jessica we haven't had that conversation so how would you answer that i mean i i don't know if you could because i think i mean all of those things that both of you just mentioned sound like they sound great but i think we're so like the culture so far I mean, I guess I can only speak for like academia, but like there's no, I don't, I don't feel like there's enough understanding of, of even just like history and like what, mm -hmm. I, I think you brought this up earlier, Alex, of like, like what, what is a union like there to do? I feel like that fundamental understanding is so not there that even if you did all of those things, I don't know. I, I just don't know how it would how it would work i mean obviously the money like draining all of this mm -hmm. you know, money especially sort of in the upper echelons and when you look at like the national level and like all of the political overlap and like the pharmaceutical overlap and that came mm -hmm. up in an article um i mean that's huge but even if you strip it down to just like uh relatively non-hierarchical structure of some kind like I, I don't know I just feel like the the teacher's loyalty I don't know I mean maybe it's just like my betrayal <laughs> like to, yeah like, betrayed by my colleagues and I I mean I think it's relevant too. like I mean, we have been pretty gloom and doom this whole time but like you're you say like in the article and I I really appreciated this right despite the fact that they already 
This is the unions extorted $190 billion in emergency COVID funds from taxpayers. Union leaders insist that public schools are failing simply because they do not have enough funding. However, basic academic gaps do not require billions of dollars in societal transformation to be addressed. There's evidence that simple curricular changes, for example, can vastly improve student literacy. I mean, it's funny to read, but like, yeah, I, I feel like there's this whole kind of scam being run where they're basically like, we cannot teach anyone to read until you give us download the treasury restructure society yeah (laughs) and this is a baked in something needs to be behind bars before (laughs) we can teach a sixth grader to read (laughs) it's like become so ingrained and baked in like to a lot of the mentality um that it feels like sometimes uh i mean i think it's it's very counterproductive to accomplishing the goals of a school, the goals of teachers. But I would say there's a fairly long history of people who are essentially uh, protectors of the state, whether it be mm-hmm. prison unions or uh, police, of them extorting that same state and saying, mm. give us this or we're going to stop doing our thing. We're going to stop, yeah. stop working for you. And that's now how I see that. Teachers yeah. are essentially, you know, they, they put it in terms of curriculum or education. But really, all the, I mean, I do believe the ruling class knows, at least for now, until they build a broader AI apparatus, they do need these humans to keep other workers in line and, yeah. and train the next generation of workers to stay in line. So I do believe they know that. I just don't think teachers have, like, they haven't understood that they are just literally um, uh, emissaries of these, of these, of these uh, autocratic institutions. Um, yeah, and, and they think of themselves as liberating students within their classroom, but they're actually jailing them, jailing them intellectually. Um, mm-hmm. And then they think about all oh, of this. It's the it's the school to prison pipeline, as if they're like, we're going to stop that. But you are you are literally yeah. building a different <laughs> prison for for them now, you know. And it's and, and they don't they don't see that. And yeah. So it's it's um that's why I do believe. For me, uh, I, I I remember reading about how the IWW, the International Workers of the World, didn't believe in a contract in their in their labor struggles mm-hmm. because they felt a contract actually would codify. Then would, then lawyers start. Then somebody else is an arbiter is going to get in and decide what's going to happen between the worker and management. And they were like, "No, we want everything decided by struggle, and we don't mm. we don't want to think that these lines of words are what defend you. We want workers to understand that they defend themselves." Mm-hmm. I'm starting to understand at least the value of that way of thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, and that has led me to believe that all these things have to go. Um, and workers are going to have to, like, I do understand how the apparatus is protecting them at one level, but it's actually, it's, it's a much bigger hindrance to change than it is a protector. Um, and I feel like the institutions themselves have to decay and be destroyed um, mm. in whatever way possible. And I know that the state, you know, we're going to sue you, we're going to fine you, and then then workers are supposed to get up and arm that the apparatus is being fined. And I'm like, no, go ahead and fine them, go ahead and sue them. I think they actually have to go away, and workers are going to have to just face the state and their boss, and and do and and figure out how to organize with each other to defend themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, because I feel like the minute a union forms, the clock is ticking on the ossification and the bureaucracy. Um, and you and you have a you have a small, in my opinion, you have a small window of time 
by which that local struggle gets spread and becomes a bigger struggle and where a bigger change could happen. Because if you just say, oh, we're going to put it into a form of a contract, then we're going to have a union apparatus defend it. Mm-hmm. And it's a wrap at that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the the bureaucracy problem is not um under it should be understood in in like every issue that we come up against the how there's often a bureaucracy in place it's actually meant to solve the problem but it's just perpetuating the problem because it's in the interest of the bureaucracy to keep it going at a certain point and this explains a lot of the the issues that we like you come up against that make no sense and it's just like well because people aren't incentivized to to do the thing that would make sense because then they'd have less power it's just a lot of um different issues are like that so it's it's hard to realize but then it's applicable in a lot of different circumstances I think the thing I don't know like how you guys feel but I really struggle with like forgiving the teachers or as people kind of I don't know how you feel about it um because it does come down to certain decisions that people made as individuals um and things they went along with and I think that at the time, I guess in 2020, at some point, I decided, like, I guess I'm just waging, like, waging a silent war against everyone I know. But now it's, you know, very much, I, I like, have a lot of distance from it. So I feel like now is the time to kind of try to understand and forgive. But I really can't. Like, I can kind of move on. But I can't really um, forgive people. I don't know how you, how do you feel about it? I wish Eduardo was here because I feel like he's really passionate <laughs> about this. Yes. I mean, I, I feel similar. Like I, so I switched to my, the institution I'm at now, I guess it was end of 2021. Mm-hmm. Uh, after like being the person at the front of the front lines, I mean like whatever, protesting in the, president's office and shit like that and like at my new institution like I I'm happy to be friends with people who are not you know who stood for different things but I didn't join the union I still Mm -hmm. feel like kind of weird about that but because it's like a small campus and like most of my colleagues are in it and fairly passionate about it but I'm like they didn't protect me when I needed protection. So like, why, Mm -hmm. I mean, not to be like individualistic about it, but like it, why would I, why would I waste my time and my energy when like they don't have my back when it, did you, did you need protection because of mandates and stuff? Yeah. So I, I ended up like getting a job offer at a, at this, where I am now, like two weeks before I would have found out for sure if they were going to fire me. Mm-hmm. But my institution rejected, uh, I think it was around like 70% of exemption requests. Wow. Um, a lot of those were medical, like they fired mm-hmm. my because it was a big like biomedical hub, um, University of Washington in Seattle. But um, yeah, like no, nobody, nobody had our back. Like that's what a union's for. You're supposed to yeah job <laughs> or salary. And like they were literally, I mean, I was called everything under the sun, like, mm-hmm. 
racist and all of it um domestic terrorist <laughs> like it's just I mean it's crazy but I mean the other thing like just like future stuff since we're talking about that I mean I I increasingly wonder like what is this world gonna look at as these kids who have lost out on this education and, and that's kind of where your article ends it's pretty it's a pretty bleak like ending you know the children who will never catch up who never catch up will grow into damaged illiterate adults who cannot participate in labor force and who are plagued by social dysfunction and decay um ultimately the union will achieve its vision of remaking the world only it will be a broken disfigured world that no one wants and i i mean i don't even think we sound so harsh <laughs> i mean but you're right like i i I keep, I mean, I see them a little older, but it was like, you know, I saw immediately after the lockdowns, like this just social dysfunction, clearly like college students were just not, not prepared for like basic things. And now it's like getting worse and worse. I taught a, like a high school in the college, like high school aged uh, kids this summer taking a college class and like they were talking about if they were in middle school like they basically just missed middle school Mm, yeah it's just uh and then I think about like the kids who missed first second third grade Mm -hmm. like I just think we're in for a shit show (laughs) like like what are all these what's gonna happen to all these people they just seem like target like just sitting ducks for whatever hellscape is you know building (laughs) Yeah, I think at each at each each age affected, each age range affected, it will look different. But I mean, even just kids who are in college, if you talk to 22-year-olds now, they really seem like teenagers cuz they didn't really go through the things they needed to work out like they were at home. It that's one issue. Um then like what you said, the kids in kindergarten, first grade, second grade, they really didn't get what they needed to get at that age at all. Um, my students were in middle school. I feel like that's a really make or break time for a lot of kids. And um, it turned a lot of situations that could have been like, you're okay, you're on a trajectory to lead a good life into a completely different situation um and all of those situations add up I think when we had when we were in school closures um I just kept thinking about how the fact that it's very hard for kids to come back from winter break or from summer break they have to relearn the routines they have to remember what it what it what it is to be in school um and the longer the time away, the harder it is to get back into the routine. So a lot of kids that then has to get back into that routine, which if you're not in, creates a huge barrier to your learning. Um, they didn't get back in. And you can see that from the chronic absence numbers, which are huge, uh, which went up in 2021 we're really high. We're really high in 2022. We're really high in 2023 and they have, they're not going down. (laughs) Um, So I think we're going to see a lot of ripple effects and it will, it will really have, it will have changed 
society in very clear ways. And we're going to be able to look at countries like in Europe where they open the schools in the fall of 2020. Um, or I guess even in Sweden, like in this, they kept it open for under 16s in the spring of 2020. You'll be able to see in like certain comparisons to those countries. You might be able to see certain comparisons between states. Um, but I think that was one thing that I felt that people didn't understand at the time in 2020, which I think they do understand now, which was that it wasn't just an issue about kids or families or parents or teachers. It was really a whole of society thing because at some point everybody is going to be impacted by what has happened to the younger generation. When we're old, the younger generation is going to need to take care of us. <laughs> so <laughs> we need them to, you know, be able to run things. And if they can't, that's not, that's not good for anybody. Yeah. I guess one question I have for you then is, now, in some ways, one could see that these last two or three years was, okay, things weren't good before it, but there yeah. was a blip of just utter destruction that happened in a two or yeah. three year period, and then maybe a somewhat return to normal. That's one way of looking at it, and that we're just going to have the ripple of those two or three year bad bad years that we're going to, that will just kind of can carry on in a kind of ripple effect or something like that. Um, but a term that's often come up on our show is the term controlled demolition. Controlled mm -hmm. demolition of the economy, controlled demolition of our institutions, controlled demolition of education, that actually these events were are detonators for a much larger, more pernicious plan. Um, and that we're not even we're just at the beginning of how ugly this is going to get, not because of just the ripple effect of the last two, three years, but that was sort of the um starting gun for a whole section of changes that our rulers want to make in the world. Um and most of them, I think, that we've talked about are seen through the lens of tech and data collection and the Internet and AI and all those sorts of things. Um, is How would you say you see this? Um, do you like, you know, uh, would you see it more as like we're, we'll never recover from those bad years? Or do you see it more like, OK, that was just the start of a very bad, pernicious and evil plan? I don't I I I I think it was the start of something. I mean, I guess I would I think there's always a possibility that we could reverse course. Yes. Yeah. Um I don't think we are reversing course right now. I think we're in a like pretend nothing ever happened kind of place. Of I it's this ear I feel like it's very eerie cuz it's kind of like uh, when it, when everything was over, it felt like people acted like nothing, like nothing ever happened. You know, it's like, weren't you trying to like kill unvaccinated people like a week ago? You know, it was just, <laughs> this is like, so it's very, it's very, it's very kind of eerie to me. Mm -hmm. Um, but I, I do think it's possible to reverse course, but I would say, yeah, I don't, I I don't think it was just this bad few years and now we're going to go back to normal and everything. I, I think things have really changed and I think we're on the road to keep changing. I think that at the time, a lot of the things, 
at the time, a lot of the things they were doing felt like it would be permanent, like they're going to just have vaccine passes forever, like we're going to have permanent masking every winter, whatever. And someone said to me, I don't think it's permanent. I think it's just to destroy things just enough to get enough done. So to accomplish some accomplish something. Yeah. Um, and I think that's exactly what happened. And I think I I think it's really difficult in the moment to figure out what's going on. And right now we're in the moment of this lull. So it's hard in this moment to fit to figure out what that lull kind of means. Um and I uh I think that I'm not sure how much I personally don't really know what to do about it because I feel like for myself, I'd really like to move on. Um, I feel like I did my bit and I'm kind of done and like COVID-19 is not my problem. (laughs) I just want it to be over. Uh, But then I also feel like I don't want to forget because I feel like your mind is very vulnerable. Um, That was a big lesson from this period, everyone's mind is very vulnerable and like guarding your mind is really important. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't want to, I don't want to, I, I, I feel like for me that it's about striking a healthy balance between moving on and remembering. Because I do think that we're in a different, we're in something new now. And it will play, like you said, it's the beginning. And I really liked what you said. Everyone's mind is vulnerable and you're including yourself and I include myself. And I think I've seen so many people who I respect go a particular way that I do believe my own head can get turned. And I really do believe what you're saying is you have to be vigilant right now to not get, get turned in a way that's, again, turning yourself against your own interests is what happened to people. Um, yeah. But I I think that sort of humility is really necessary because we are dealing with a powerful thing. Yeah. It's very powerful. And it, it's, uh, it, it is, I feel like, affected all areas of life. It's affected every person in my life. It's affected every relationship in my life. Yeah. It seeped into everything, so you shouldn't underestimate it. <laughs> yeah, no, I I yeah. really agree with that, and I think whether you are a freedom person and you feel like you oh I knew COVID all along, I don't think anyone should get comfortable and no. think that they can't get turned somehow. Because, but I do believe I am not hopeless about the idea of us turning it back. I just have come into a deeper sense of that. Wow, we have to change so much, so much more than I thought we had to change. Um, yeah, I, I I thought of myself as a revolutionary, and now when I think about a revolution, it's like whoa, it was a lot of change before. Now it's got to be way more than that. I'm like, oh boy, <laughs> that's hard, you know. But I don't see any way around it. I just don't see a way around it. I mean, I think the thing that does give me hope is that there were people uh, all along the way who said no. So you know. I I I feel like that there's this natural human um fail-safe kind of mechanism where you'll there will be people hopefully still us 
us guard our minds, but there will <laughs> always be people who will instinctively say no. I it was almost like this animalistic thing. I mean, for me, it was like just pure instinct. Because if I thought it through, I would have made completely different decisions. <laughs> Be like, I'd like to keep my friends. I'd like to keep my job that I love. You know, that would have been my rational mind. Mm-hmm. So I do think there's this almost animal response that people go through where they're like, this is my line and I'm not going to, uh, I'm not going to break with that. So I have confidence that that will always be there. Um just like hope it's not it just has to be enough yeah you know i agree jessica anything else we no i think that's a great note to end on yeah preserve the primal animal instinct (laughs) yes years of evolutionary instinct you know instinct that's built up to (laughs) protect you and society and your community I mean, we could reread the final line of your article, but I think we should end on this note. Yeah. Yeah. I'm more hopeful. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Um, Alex, do you want to, why don't you plug your stuff? Like where can people find you and what do you have coming up? If there's anything. Okay. So you can find me on Twitter. It's at galaxy brain, G A L E X B R A N E. And I still write for tablet. You can find me there, but I, started up like three months ago working for um public news on Substack, which is Michael Schellenberger's Substack. He's one of the guys that did the Twitter files. So I've been working on censorship stuff and abusive power stuff um with him and his team. Um also Leighton Woodhouse also founded that. So it was a nice transition for me to go from like censored COVID commentator to someone talking about censorship so anyways you can find me on substack to just under my name or through public um i think that's the end of my plugs right on yeah we'll link everything below so people want to check it out all right alex thank you very much for joining us today this was an awesome discussion and um hopefully you can join us for future things that talking about union talking about censorship um there's a lot of things uh Talking about keeping our minds safe. I think that was that's what yeah, I was Yeah, come, come back on anytime. <laughs> yeah. Thanks so much for having me. This was really fun. It's great to meet like-minded educators. Yeah, for, there's, for, like, there's like 10 of us, right? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All 10 of us. <laughs> <laughs> and three of them are here. Um, all right, well, that does it for this week's episode. What's Left is a weekly political podcast channel challenging the mainstream left. Post information about our topics and our guests on the episode notes, wherever you found this episode or on our blog, whatsleftpodcast.com. You can find past episodes of this podcast channel there and connect with us. I remind folks, if you like anything you've heard here, please subscribe, rate, review, turn on your notifications to any of our nine platforms, uh, Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, BitChute, Odyssey, Rumble, YouTube, or Telegram. Um, If you would like to give us feedback about something you've heard or suggest something for us to cover, contact us through our blog. Um, So for Jessica, happy birthday. Alex, thank you so much. And for Andy, um, we'll be signing off and we'll see you next week.